According to reporter Benjamin Moore, Superman was the first superhero introduced, uh, that introduced Americans to a new role that their government had. Unlike grandiose, um, the, the grandiose spe- uh, spectacle of heroes' current cinematic iterations, Superman's first appearance in 1938 showed him combating social issues. In the debut issue of Action Comics, he saved a woman from death row who had been wrongly accused, prevented a domestic abuser from further harming his wife, and stopped a gangster from blackmailing a senator. Superman was someone who was prepared to stand up for truth, to stand against injustice, to challenge social issues of the day. Benjamin Moore longs for a return of such a champion. Today, as we continue our series of creating community, um, I would want to echo Moore's desire to see people rise up and to stand for truth, to stand against injustice, to challenge social issues of the day. But the challenge is that in our desire to fit in, it can result in us selling out in compromising what we believe is important. In the Facebook world that people live in, people search online for love and acceptance and all too easily settle for a like. I remember chatting to one person who is a regular poster on Facebook and he would post his comments on Facebook and we talked about um, what he shared and what he commented on and he acknowledged that he intentionally worded things in such a way to try and get more likes or comments about his posts. But the challenge was this, who he presented himself to be in the Facebook world was different to who he was in the real world. In the Facebook world, he was a moral freedom fighter, quick to judge others for their sins, calling for the boycotts of products because of the harm and the, de- the deception that they caused. But on the other side of the keyboard, he lived in his own world of deception and lies, hiding the truth of betrayed trust until a pregnancy meant that the lies could not be he- held or hidden any longer. You see, there's a challenge that we face that when we look for a tribe to belong to, when we strive to fit in, when we look for love and yet we will compromise and capitulate just to get a like, that when we look for love but we settle for a like, why is it then that people seek charisma when they should really be seeking to follow character? Why is it that we don't have more people that are prepared to stand for truth? One of the things that um, Hugh McKay wrestles with is this paradox of human behavior. Within us, we carry the ability to both be selfish and selfless. We are prepared to fight for our survival, but we long to fit into community, to herd together, to find our tribe. That the desire to fit in can result in a selling out and compromising what we believe is important. We can spend so much time looking over our shoulder for the approval of others that we fail to act on the issues that are right in front of us. 
So perfect is this storm that when it all comes together, we know what we should do. The actions that our character within calls forth from us. But because no one else is doing anything, we step back. We're more concerned about the approval of others or to save our skin rather than stepping in. Our desire to be liked by others, our desire not to be judged by others has us modify our behavior to maintain the status quo. On the 19th of November last year, you may recall me talking about a lady by the name of Kitty Genovese's murder in 1964 that highlighted what has sometimes been termed as diffusion of responsibility or the bystander effect. We assume that someone else will act, that if no one else steps in, then then why should I? Where this is particularly of interest is when it comes to the development of community values. As we heard a couple of weeks ago from Hugh McKay, the local neighbourhood is a place where neighbours are expected to act like neighbours. Not by being each other's best friends, though occasionally this happens, but by recognising that when you buy or rent a house or apartment, you are taking your place as a member of a neighbourhood and moral and social obligations flow from that. But the challenge is that when you see the increased fragmentation of homes, of neighbourhoods, of communities, we also see a dilution of values and standards of behaviour. McKay continues to reflect that every community lives within the shadows of human frailty. Every community is weakened by the loss of energy its members squander in the struggle between their competitive and cooperative natures. Every community is wounded by conflict, pettiness, insensitivity, infidelity and malice. Just as every community is strengthened by people's willingness to take each other's needs and well-beings into account and to live in a spirit of mutual obligation and respect. As with any person's relationship we value, a healthy relationship with a community needs to be uh, tend and that in, uh, needs to be tended to, and that includes a willingness to face the problems that inevitably arise in any relationship and to deal with them in a spirit of kindness and compassion. There is no law that says neighbours must be nice to each other. And there is no law that says that when it comes to building an extension, noise issues, tree plantings, dog control, or other encroachments on our neighbours' amenity, that we should go beyond the requirements of the council regulations. But the spirit of the community says otherwise. Well, it does when we're prepared to speak up. If we want to be a part of creating a community, then each one of us at all levels within the community must be prepared to stand for truth, even when it costs. Two and a half thousand years ago, a young woman was faced with a dilemma. She could continue to keep her ethnicity a secret enjoy the privilege and maintain her standing in her social group or she could take a stand for the truth. Well before the era of Facebook, Esther's profile strategically omitted that she was a Jew. Living in Persia, where the Jewish nation was taken against their will, rights and privileges 
were few and far between. Previously advised by her uncle who adopted her, Mordecai, he told Esther to keep her identity a secret. But then bullying in that community turned to planned genocide at the hands of Haman, who purchased the lives of the Jewish nation for today's equivalent of a sum of around $160 million. Sheltered in that palace, Esther was unaware of the events that were uh, shaping the lives of her people. All she knew was that Mordecai was in deep distress. So we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4 verse 4. When Queen Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her about Mordecai, she was deeply distressed. She sent clothing to him to replace the burlap, but he refused it. Then Esther sent Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed as her attendant. She ordered him to go to Mordecai and find out what was troubling him and why he was mourning. So Hathach went to Mordecai in the square in front of the palace gate. Mordecai told him the whole story, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa that called for the death of all Jews. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. But he also asked Hathak to direct her to go to the king and to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the peoples in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. The king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. For Esther, keeping her ethnicity a secret would have seemed so appealing. Being in the palace had already provided her with this sheltered worldview of the world around her. No longer did she mix with people in the community. Her connections with the outside world was through messenger. And as such, her reality and worldview had become distorted. When stuff happens out there, when people bully others, when values are challenged and the worth of a human life is treated with such contempt, it could be so tempting to keep the gulf between the others and you as something to be protected. Today, people get caught up in the same temptations. If I say something, if I intervene, if I do something, what might happen to me? I'll just mind my own business and leave it for someone else to stand up for the truth. Mordecai obviously perceived the safety that Esther viewed the world through. But Mordecai also knew that when the values of human life are being challenged, when bullies wield power, when neighbours turn on each other, those are the times that you just cannot turn away. Those are the times when you can't just cover your ears and pretend that it's not happening. 
Those are the times when you cannot just play it safe. Mordecai knew that once the rot sets in, it's only a matter of time before it impacts everyone. So Mordecai messaged back to Esther in chapter 4, verse 13. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. So Mordecai went and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In a different time, in a different place, an American man was confronted with behaviours that treated others with contempt. Values of human life were being challenged. Bullies wielded power. Neighbours were turning on each other. And for this man, he believed that those were the times that you can't just turn away. Those were the times when you can't just cover your ears and pretend that it's not happening. Those are the times when you couldn't just play it safe. Martin Luther King said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end purpose of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. It can be easy for us when stuff happens around us that is harmful or hurtful to others. It can be easy to justify, the cost is too great for me to do something about this. We can justify the bystander effect. No one else is stepping in, so why should I? But we as Christians who truly believe that this life is temporary, as we believe that we have eternal life with our Saviour Jesus, that this life is a fleeting moment and momentary troubles of this world pale in comparison to the amazing eternal life that awaits us. So as followers of Jesus and as believers of the values that Jesus taught, shouldn't we be the first to take a stand for the truth? If we want to see the community better, to see our neighbourhoods become stronger, if we long to see homes and workplaces free from bullies and bad behaviour, then the next time someone gossips, the next time someone badmouths someone, another student, a workmate, a colleague, the next time someone behaves badly, we can pretend that the risk is not worth it. 
and turn away or worse, join in. If we as followers of Jesus are not prepared to take risks like Esther, prayerfully standing up for the truth and in doing so lead the way in the community, then who will? If our commission is not to stand for the truth in our community and as King says, do the will of God, then to be quite blunt, what in God's name are we doing here? To be a follower of Jesus in our community is to stand for the truth, to advocate for others and like Esther, to prayerfully take risks and step into scary situations even when our knees are shaking. And yes, it may cost you. It may cost you as much as it costs Martin Luther King. But imagine the difference that we can make when we take a risk and prayerfully take a stand for the truth to create a better community. I wonder, as we pause and as we reflect on what we've heard today, in what areas have you been prepared to turn away from and not to challenge attitudes and actions? What might you take away from Esther's willingness to prayerfully take a risk. And perhaps today, as we take some time to respond, ask the Holy Spirit to help you to know when and where you should take a stand to create a better community. We're going to have some music played and as that music's played, I invite you to take out those response cards and prayerfully respond to one or uh, more of those things. There might be something else that God's been laying on your heart as a result of us being together today. But what difference will you make in the community? How will you be prepared to stand for truth, to stand for the values of Jesus, to stand up for others? God bless you.